0: hey everyone welcome back to a brand new episode of nutshell politics i am excited to be here with you guys this week my name is justin kinney and i will be your charming host on this episode now, for this week's episode, we're going to be using a current event that just took place last week and using that as a kind of a kickoff for a spotlight episode, uh, which is something I haven't actually done in a while, uh, but it's one of my favorite episodes to do where we kind of really dive into the identity of a specific group and kind of who they are and their background. And so we're going to do that actually this week with a terrorist group. And the reason we're doing this is because last week, um, probably, actually almost probably a full week ago now, there was a terrorist attack in Somalia. Uh, in the, the capital of Somalia there was an attack a car bomb that was set off uh, last Monday that killed uh, at least 10 people um, and with another dozen or, or two dozen injured and basically what happened is that this there was a car that was packed with explosives and then they drove it up and parked it near a security checkpoint by the airport in the city. Uh, And again, the capital city of Somalia, which is uh, Mogadishu. That's M-O-G-A-D-I-S-H-U, Mogadishu. It's one of my favorite uh, capital names. It's a fun one to say. Uh, So Mogadishu is the capital of Somalia, and they have a a big international airport there. And so this this car uh, was driven up and parked right near a security checkpoint for the airport. And then it was detonated by remote control. So it was not a suicide attack like some, like the attacks, say, in Sri Lanka a while back. But it was a a pretty massive, very powerful explosion. Uh, It took place in the morning when a lot of people were kind of on the road uh, going to work, uh, going to, to the airport. And also during this, this is actually during the time period, of the the Hajj pilgrimage, which is, a, if you're not super familiar with, with Islam, they have five pillars. And one of the big pillars of Islam is that you're supposed to take a pilgrimage to Mecca, which is a, a city in Saudi Arabia that's considered very sacred and holy to Islam. And so this is a, during the time period of the year when people make that pilgrimage. And so there were a lot of adherents to Islam who were kind of in the process of traveling to attend that Hajj pilgrimage in Saudi Arabia. And so this attack was a pretty major deal. As I said, it killed at least 10 people. I I haven't seen a final death count on it, but there were at least 10 people killed. And as I said, another dozen to two dozen or so injured with many of those suffering critical wounds that if we're being totally honest, we'll probably end up uh, raising that casualty count uh, going forward as well. Now, the group that carried out this attack is a, a very... A familiar one to anybody who studies terrorism, as as I do, and that's a group called Al-Shabaab. Now, Al-Shabaab, you will see this spelled multiple different ways, but it's A-L, very common in um, Arabic-speaking countries to have that kind of prefix, so A-L-Dash-S-H-A-B-A-A-B, Al-Shabaab. Sometimes you'll hear it with only one of those second A's, so it'll just be S-H-A-B-A-B. So you'll see it written a couple different ways. But this is a, a very familiar and very powerful terrorist group in this region. They're kind of the the Al-Qaeda Somali cousins, more or less. But they're a jihadist group in East Africa. And they have a, a small faction in Yemen and kind of some other countries in that area. But mostly they're in Somalia. And so I want to use this terrorist attack as kind of a, a launching off point to discuss al-Shabaab and kind of what some of these the dangers are in East Africa with some of these very violent very violent terrorist groups uh, so let's go ahead and kind of dive into al-Shabaab and kind of talk about who they are where they came from what they want and what's what's going on there because this is still to this day one of the more powerful uh, terrorist attacks in the uh, sorry one of the more powerful terrorist groups in the world and even though as we'll get to in a minute they have kind of been weakened in recent years, they are still very capable of carrying out some pretty deadly attacks. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive into this. So as I said, uh, the name of the group is Al-Shabaab, but it's actually a abbreviation of a larger name. Sometimes you'll see them called HSM, which stands for Harakat Al-Shabaab Al-Mujahideen. So sometimes you'll see it HSM, but it's frequently abbreviated just down to Al-Shabaab. And as I said, they are they're kind of the, the Somali cousins of Al-Qaeda. They actually are formally allied with Al-Qaeda. You'll sometimes even hear them called the Al-Qaeda of Somalia. Uh, they, they're they almost like a franchise of the, the more famous group that was led by bin Laden and was involved in the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And so they're kind of in that family. Now, the name of the group is Arabic for Party of the Youth, which means that they are very, very focused on engaging and recruiting and radicalizing the younger crowd. Now, almost all terrorist groups in the world do this, and there's a lot of reasons for that. That's something we can talk about if we do a whole episode on terrorism studies, which I would love to do down the road. But basically, the idea is the younger they are, the more easily it is to radicalize them. Because when you're at kind of this younger age, you haven't really developed a sense of identity and purpose And if you're really struggling with that, if you're in a vulnerable situation, groups like this can come in and really target you and and radicalize you. Much easier than to, say, radicalize a full-grown adult uh, who has been out in the world with an identity and a purpose for a long time. Doesn't mean that they can't do it, and there have been a lot of examples of older uh, radicals as well, but it's much easier to radicalize the younger ones. But al-Shabaab in particular really targets the youth for their radicalization. And we'll talk about that even more in a minute, but let's take a step back. So if you haven't heard of Al Shabaab, you've probably almost certainly heard of their exploits. You probably know them best as the ones who were responsible for a mall attack in Nairobi back in 2013. Uh, they went into a, a pretty major shopping mall in, in, in Kenya and uh, started firing into the crowd and everything. It was a pretty big deal. And there was another attack on a college campus in Kenya in a town called Garissa. It killed about 148 people. It's one of the most deadly terrorist attacks in the world. And in particular, what they became known for is, especially in the college attack, targeting Christians and other uh, religious minorities in the area. And So they really go after anybody who adheres to uh, Christianity, but also some minority faiths. Now, the reason they have been so strong for uh, for so long, and we'll talk about their history in a second, is because Somalia, I want to talk about this country for a second, uh, Somalia is known for their very weak government over the years, uh, particularly in more recent times. They are uh, known for being one of the, the weaker governments in the world, Uh, To the point where, for brief periods of time in the 21st century, you might even consider them to not have a a real government. They have been so weak that they're essentially run by radical groups, tribal factions, and things like this. Now, they do technically have a government body, but they are are rampant with terrible poverty, uh, corruption, and, as I said, a very weak central government not not because they don't want a stronger government. They've just never been able to gain control of the country uh, due to groups like Al Shabaab. But also, uh, if you're familiar with the Somali pirates, which are kind of a famous thing, uh, their their coastal line is is just runs rampant with with piracy and groups like that who try to rob ships and steal. And so the Somali government is is very weak. And so what this means is that the Somali people have been kind of victims of this for a long time, which makes them a very easy target for groups that come along and promise, you know, hey, we'll get you a paycheck, we'll get you a purpose, you know, we we won't let you fall into poverty. And so groups like al-Shabaab, and actually several others as well, uh, they're not the only one. This is partly how they have radicalized. They go in and promise that they are the better alternative to a, a famously weak government. Now, as we'll talk about in a little bit, this has changed a little over the, the last few years. In 2012 or so, they passed a new constitution in Somalia, and this, this kind of reestablished the, the federal government of Somalia, and so they've kind of begun a period of, shall we say, reconstruction. Uh, now, it does not mean that they are strong by any means, but this federal government of Somalia is the first permanent uh, central government in the country you know, in, in years. And so while they have kind of fallen off the top of the list of the most fragile countries in the world, uh, they, were, they were at the very top for a few years. Uh, they've dropped now behind South Sudan uh, as of 2014. I think they've fallen even further, uh, but they are still considered one of the weakest countries, a very, very fragile state, although they are kind of making some progress towards stability. And we're going to have to wait and, and see if that continues uh, because they've been dealing with civil war and conflict for a long time. Now, let's get back to, to Al-Shabaab. So Al-Shabaab, before they really existed, there was another group called AIAI, AI, which is Al-Itihad Al-Islami. It was um, a group in Somalia that, that was really focused on establishing an Islamic government. Uh, and this was partially funded by Bin Laden. And this is, this is where we get some of the early connections to Al-Qaeda. And so this group was fairly strong in the area, but by the early 2000s, there was a rift that had opened up between the, shall we say, the old guard of the AIAI and some of the newer, younger members who were a little bit more fundamentalist in nature. And so some of these younger fundamentalists began to ally with some of the court systems in the area. In particular, the the Islamic Courts Union, which is a, a Sharia system of governance. Uh, you've probably heard the word Sharia, or talked about Sharia law. It's a, an Islamic justice system that's in place. We can, that's a different topic for a different day. But these kind of younger fundamentalist members began to ally with some of these regional Islamic courts. and In particular, the Islamic Courts Union, the ICU. Now, the Ethiopian forces got very nervous. And Ethiopia is a, a neighboring country to Somali, and a lot of the Ethiopian government, Ethiopian military forces, became very nervous that the violence that was taking place, there was, there was a, obviously there's been violence here for a long time, they got really nervous that the violence being backed by the ICU was going to spill over into their country. And so they talked to the Somali government at the time, and with the, the government backing them in Somalia... They went into the country of Somalia, entered Mogadishu, and set out to remove the ICU. But this was probably, in in retrospect, a pretty major mistake on their part, uh, because it was seen as an outside force coming in and trying to influence uh, Somali politics. And so the ICU subsequently splinters even further, and al-Shabaab is one of these more radical groups who kind of comes out of this conflict with Ethiopia and the ICU. Uh, So the younger guard kind of strike back against the Somali government, against the Ethiopian forces who have entered their country, and al-Shabaab kind of becomes a thing. So al-Shabaab sees themselves as an insurgent group fighting against the Somali government, fighting against anyone that they perceive as supporting the the formal government. Now this mostly means the United States, Westerners, uh, Christians but it also can mean other countries in the area, like these Ethiopian forces. Uh, But it also, interestingly, will sometimes mean things like UN peacekeepers, international aid workers. They're one of the few terrorist groups in the world that has been known to target aid workers at times. Uh, Because they go after aid workers, a lot of international organizations like the UN, but plenty of others as well, simply can't provide help to the people of Somalia. And the Somalia, as I said, has been a very weak government for a long time, but I didn't even mention they've been undergoing famine and other crises uh, over the many years. And so the people of Somalia have really drastically been suffering, uh, leading the country to have one of the highest mortality rates in the world for children. They're, They're right up there near the top. But because the aid workers get targeted, a lot of groups won't send aid into the country because you know they have all these people who are not trained in fighting and military, who are just trying to be there to provide medical aid or food aid or whatever, and they're being targeted and killed by al-Shabaab. Now, al-Shabaab is doing this for a lot of different reasons, mostly twofold, One, they do see it as an extension of the West, who is trying to come in and influence. In the same way they saw Ethiopia coming in and trying to influence the politics of the region, they see international aid workers coming in as a further extension of that and uh, so that, that's one thing. They, they don't like that. They want to be governed by themselves, again, through uh, Islamic Sharia law uh, that they, they want to put into place as kind of a particularly extreme version of that. But they also, this is, this is probably one of the sadder elements of it and one of the more frustrating ones, but groups like al-Shabaab prey on vulnerable populations who are poor. And so they actually have incentive to keep the people poor. Um, and we actually see this in a lot of groups as well. We see this with Hamas in the Palestinian territories. A lot of people, um, this is a little bit more controversial area because of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but one of the more common themes is that Hamas and the Palestinian government in in some of these areas in Palestine don't really have much incentive to make things better for the people. And so when aid comes into say, the Gaza Strip, a lot of times it just gets funneled into the fighting and funneled to the terrorist group that's running the area and not to the people because if you let the people get fed and get paychecks and and start to rebuild their economy, then all of a sudden they may not need this terrorist group anymore to provide some of these services for them. And so al-Shabaab is very, very much, uh, they're one of the stronger groups that does this type of thing uh, where they, they just really don't have much incentive To improve the lives of the people as long as they can keep them poor and keep them kind of separated from the western world you know they they don't even really know that that's a lot of this is going on Um, and so they they really prey on and exploit uh, this very weak corrupt area uh, of of the world now we're going to go ahead and take a a short commercial break here allow me to catch my breath and then we're going to jump back in and talk a little bit more about the hierarchy of the group and the ideology of the group on the other side. Uh, So stick with me, and I'll be back with you guys in just a minute or so. Hey, guys, welcome back. Thanks for sticking with me through that brief commercial break. Let's go ahead and dive right back into spotlighting uh, the group known as Al Shabab. Uh, So before the break, we talked a little bit about uh, the group and their history and kind of who they are and kind of where they came from. Now I want to really focus on what kind of makes up the organization in terms of the people, but more individualistic. And we're going to talk about the ideology of them as well. And so let's go ahead and jump right back in. So uh, Al-Shabaab, actually Africa in general, but especially East Africa is a very multi-ethnic region of the world. A lot of times we tend to think of Africa as very monolithic, uh, with the exception of maybe Egypt being different, but there are hundreds of different ethnicities and tribes across the continent, and Somalia is no different. And what this means is that Al-Shabaab is a very multi-ethnic organization. Because they have a political aim, it's not, it's not a, an ethnic group, per se. Uh, there are some groups in the world, like, uh, say, the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka, that were a very ethnic-based organization. There, there was one ethnic group fighting for representation, etc., for that ethnic group. That's not the case with Al-Shabaab. They're a very multi-ethnic group, uh, which has caused some problems for the organization, I should say. Uh, it makes them a little bit vulnerable to infighting. We tend to see this group have a lot of struggles over their their objectives. They're a lot less clear. Uh, some, some of the ethnicities... Uh, some of the people in the organization are much more focused domestically on you know, establishing an Islamic state of Somalia. Uh, others are, are more transnational. They have kind of broader goals with their connection to Al-Qaeda and some of the other organizations, you know, ISIS more recently as well. And so this has led to a lot of infighting within the group. They're not a particularly well-organized uh, entity. There's a lot of rivalries within it as well. And that has meant that their ideology has also been a little bit splintered. Now, that said, the basic ideology here is the same as Al-Qaeda, which would make sense. Again, they're kind of the Al-Qaeda Somali cousins, uh, and there are a specific ideological bent called Wahhabi, or they have Wahhabi roots. And then they're actually even a split off of Wahhabi, which is known as salafi and so you'll frequently hear them uh, their ideology discussed as salafi jihadism and in particular well, while they are not an ethnic based group they also have a very ethnic component to their ideology in the sense of being very anti-semitic as well so they're they are kind of built off of a lot what a lot of these groups have is kind of the anti anti-jewish bent or anti-zionist bent um, now, the group, because of this, uh, has been very hostile to other forms of Islam. Uh, we see them fight with other groups. There's a, a militant group uh, which has uh, Sufi roots, which is another small branch off of Islam. And uh, they've often clashed with this group. It's a group called Ahu uh, Sunna Wal Jama'a. Probably butchered that a little bit. but uh, So they've often clashed with that group as well. And even within the organization, as I said, it's been kind of splintered and there are some ideological rifts here and back in, ah, I can't remember the year, Uh, it's been several years though, Uh, there was actually a a movement within the group where several senior members of the organization, like some of the senior commanders were assassinated and there was a, a kind of overthrow as well. So the ideology here is very much in the same bent as Al Qaeda for the most part but understand that there are some uh, splinters within the organization. It's not quite as monolithic as some of these other organizations. Now, they do actually recruit from around the world. One of the, uh, the benefits of not being a, a, an ethnic-based organization is that they have been able to recruit from a lot of different other parts of the world. And they also recruit pretty heavily from the expat community of Somalia. And so there's actually been reports of up to 40 Americans who have joined them. Most of them come out of the Somali community in Minnesota. A lot of people don't really realize this, but Minnesota is for, I have no idea what the reason is here, but, uh, Minnesota has become kind of a a hotbed for Somali immigrants. And so there's, there's a pretty hefty Somali community in Minnesota and groups like Al-Shabaab really target that community. And, um, Well, the radicalization process for targeting foreigners who have ethnic roots in your country is is widely discussed. Uh, I'm not going to get too far into the details on that, but just understand they have been able to recruit from all over the world, including from the West and even from the United States in particular. Now, because of this, their size over the years has been very, very difficult to estimate. Because uh, it's really hard to know who they're recruiting from where. And they're very kind of sporadic and all over the place. Uh, I've seen estimates anywhere from like a 1,000 fighters to as high as 9,000 fighters. And they're also kind of unique in the sense that they're not just male fighters, too. They actually encourage women to fight. Uh, they not as high as some groups in terms of the, the percentage of women fighters. But they do actually encourage women fighters, which makes it even harder to kind of track down numbers. And they actually encourage elders to fight as well. While they do target the youth for recruiting, in the communities and regions that they have controlled, uh, they actually encourage elderly people to go out and fight in the field as well, which again throws a whole other wrench into the mix when you're trying to estimate their size, and it makes them a little bit more unique as well. Now, as I said, when they split from the Islamic Courts Union back in, uh, give or take, roughly 2004 to 2006, it was a kind of a multi stage process, they were entering a a society that had been really struggling with their kind of political system. The Islamic Courts Union had been established to help restore some sort of form of civic order. Uh, Prior to the Islamic Courts Union coming up, Somalia had basically been an anarchy. And so you had some of these court systems kind of crop up to deal with that and kind of provide some sort of order. And then when when Al-Shabaab split from this, they're kind of entering into this society where they are kind of half anarchical, but they also have some structure to society. And so they needed a lot of outside support because they weren't able to really work within the system because there really wasn't a system to work within. Uh, and so that in the very early years, as I said, they had some funding from uh, bin Laden. And so they pledged allegiance to al-, uh, to al Qaeda. But in later years, they actually have kind of soured on that relationship pretty much since 2012 or 2013 they they formally merged, and then a few years after that, the relationship really broke down. And mostly this is just because the the leadership who had put together that merger had, had kind of died out. And so you had a lot of kind of even newer, younger guard who had not been part of that merger, who just didn't really see a point in it anymore. But all, all of this, I'm kind of giving a backstory on this, or helps explain why al-Shabaab has a very vague structure to it, to its own entity, to its own body. Uh, it's a very decentralized hierarchy. The leadership of the group is very unclear. They, they do have a council called the Shura Council, which is like, quote unquote, the, the official policymaker for the group. But even that is not particularly strong. And there's a lot of questions as to, you know, what control they really do have. Uh, there is a formal leader, a man by the name of Ahmad Umar. Uh, ever since 2014, he's been in charge. But as I said, it's been very, very decentralized. And so different factions frequently act semi-autonomously, you know, broken away from the formal group. Uh, they do are all kind of loosely tied together. But the leadership just really isn't clear, especially once you get out into more of the rural areas where they may not be as connected to the, the main body of the group. We also see Al-Shabaab coordinates a lot and cooperate with other types of groups in the area. They they cooperate with some of the pirate gangs that that kind of patrol the shores of Somalia. They cooperate with TCOs in the area. TCO is a trans criminal organization. The most famous type of TCO is probably like the mafia, something like that. They're usually more economic-based organizations, but there are some of those type of groups in the Somalia region in the country. And so they cooperate with those as well. This is how they get a lot of their funding and resources so that they're not just like manufacturing their own funding. They're getting funding from other places. Uh, They do impose a lot of illegal taxes on people in the territory that they control. Checkpoint tolls, uh, port tolls and these types of things, and they actually have generated as much as a $100 million per year through this illegal taxation. They also, like Al-Qaeda and other groups, set up fake charities, they extort local businesses, and uh, again, like Al-Qaeda and some of these other groups, there have been lots of accusations of other countries providing funding. Uh, These countries, again, these are countries they have been accused of it, uh, not necessarily proven. Uh, Eritrea, Iran, Iran's a very common one that crops up for Uh, Funding terrorist groups, Saudi Arabia, which is a an organization or a a country that also adheres to kind of the Wahhabi tradition. Interestingly, Saudi Arabia and Iran have a huge rivalry, largely based in differing ideologies. But both of them have been accused of supporting Al Shabaab at different points in time. You also have Syria, Qatar, Yemen. Uh, All of these uh, all these countries have been accused at one point in time or another of providing funding to Al-Shabaab. And so they they get by with quite a bit of funding over the years. Um, they are one of the, the wealthier terrorist groups in Africa because of this. Now, outside of kind of their funding arms and their military actions, they actually do have a fairly sophisticated public relations organization. This has become more common in terrorist groups in say the 21st century where they really get involved more on trying to spread their ideology through things like social media and more technological means. Uh, Al-Shabaab actually runs its own radio station. There's a a radio station called Radio Andalus. Uh, They use the internet prolifically, especially on Twitter. Al-Shabaab is one of the more Twitter prolific groups in the world. And they actually produce Pretty high quality videos that crop up online. They have tried to post on YouTube and other organiz- uh, Sorry, other um, media sites, and they they really do this as a way to target the youth. I've, I've mentioned that a couple times. They really drive in on young people, and they know that young people are the ones using these social media platforms, and so they really try to use that platform to reach them. And they they, they do more than just use the platform too. As I said, these videos carry a lot of appeal to kind of young people. They they put out music videos. They actually had a hip hop video that came out a while back that was all about their jihadist ideology. It was strangely enough and very interestingly, it was in English, which means they're t- targeting English speakers with this. And so they, they do, they, they bring a lot of focus and attention on, on the youth to bring them into the organization, which leads to a lot of child soldiers uh, as well. Now, in more recent years, as I said, the Somali government has kind of been reestablished and they have kind of dropped a little bit down the list in terms of the most fragile states in the world. They are still near the top, uh, which is why al-Shabaab is still strong enough to carry out some of these terrorist attacks like the one that just took place last week. But the Somali government has gotten some of that territory back that that al-Shabaab had taken control over. And many Somalis have actually started to return to the country. Uh, when when Al Shabaab really took over, they a lot of Somalis fled the country. They were in exile abroad, and so we've actually started to see a lot of Somalis kind of move back because there's been kind of a, a rise in uh, shall we shall we say hope, I guess, among the people there. And in particular, we have seen kind of a push by Somalia and the federal government, supported by the Germans, uh, the Brits, and some other countries to actually actively seek ways to de-radicalize fighters. And there is several de-radicalization camps that have popped up. And it's it's really interesting because de-radicalization is a, a process that has been Uh, widely studied and widely unsuccessful for the most part. There have been a few interesting cases of success. And uh, these groups, again, the Germans are funding one of these camps. uh, The Brits are funding another. They have really been trying to capitalize and learn from some of the few success stories to really de-radicalize some of these fighters and bring them back into society. Now, primarily, they're targeting some of the the lower risk members, some of the less violent ones. But it's really been helping to kind of cut the legs off of the group a little bit because it's losing some of their support, losing some of the the lower level supporters and lower level fighters within the organization. And so, Al Shabaab does appear to be considerably weakened, but they are still quite strong, especially in this area with a very weak government. They've still managed to carry out lots of attacks, but they do seem to be kind of. Moving in the right direction. It's a. It's still obviously a very terrible situation in Somalia in general. There's people are still uh, very much victims of this. Are readily struggling, especially in uh, some of the more rural areas. But it does appear that Al Shabaab might be m- losing some of their control, losing some of their power, and the country may be moving in a a better uh, in a in a better direction. And uh, so, this is something that just uh, be worth keeping kind of an eye on. There have been attacks over the years. Uh, as I said, there's one just last week. The most recent one before that, that was formally tied to Al Shabaab, was back in 2017. So, two years in between attacks, you can tell they've definitely weakened a little bit. But that 2017, 2017 attack did kill more than 500 people, which is one of the largest ones. Despite losing some of that control and power, a lot of groups, including the United States, have basically argued that al-Shabaab does pose kind of a global threat. And U.S. operations against al-Qaeda, which have obviously have been going on since, since 9-11, are now concentrating on some of these groups in Somalia as well, including al-Shabaab. And a lot of these international aid organizations have kind of jumped on board as well because Al-Shabaab does, as I said, target aid workers, and so insurgents kind of routinely attack and murder anybody who is trying to bring relief to the area. Uh, So the UN has started to get involved on this as well, Uh, some other kind of Western non-governmental organizations, and a lot of times some of these non-governmental groups that are in particular focused on religious minorities, they have gotten involved as well. And so we were starting to see more of a global effort to fight Al-Shabaab because of some of the persecution that they have. They have really wrecked on the community, wrecked on the people, some of these uh, minorities. And this is drawing attention from a lot of uh, international groups. Now, despite losing a lot of power, uh, Al-Shabaab does still have a fair amount of control. And so I I think this is a a really interesting group, uh, really kind of fascinating, but also one of the more violent and, and horrifying organizations in the world and as we've seen just last week they are still very very capable and so i think this is something that as someone who has studied a lot of terrorism studies as a a kind of a formal field you know this is one of those groups that that really seems to need additional attention additional focus not only because of their control in somalia in that area and particularly with the weak somali government but also because of their reach on social media uh, and into the West, as I said, something like 40 different Americans have been suspected of, of joining Al-Shabaab at one point or another. And so so this is a group that really does seem to require that extra level of, of attention that uh, maybe a lot of other smaller groups do not. Um, and so just moving forward, I think this is a group that we will see a lot of focus on from kind of international organizations in the UN and these sorts of things as they really try to combat what they see as a a very global threat or I should say a more global threat than a lot of different groups. But I I think with that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, close down the episode. I hope that was a really interesting kind of spotlight for you on a lesser known but very powerful and very violent terrorist group in the world. If you are at all interested in getting in contact with me moving forward, you can always find me on Twitter at Justin R underscore Kinney. Please find me and follow me. Hit that follow button and we can continue this conversation about this group or we can talk about anything else as well on there. If you don't use Twitter, you want to use Facebook instead, you can find my author page. It's J Robert Kinney. That's the, uh, the author I write mystery novels under. And so you can find my two books, Precipice and Splintered State. You can find those on Amazon, both for paperback and for Kindle. Please go check those out. I would really appreciate it. Very excited about that aspect of my career. Uh, I really enjoy writing. So please go check those out. And also find my, my page and hit that follow button. And, and you can follow me there and get in contact with me through, uh, through Facebook. Now, if you're interested in supporting the podcast or supporting me in any way as i continue to make these episodes you know please reach out to me i'd be happy to talk talk with you more about that possibility particularly if you're interested in advertising or anything along those lines you're also welcome to check out my patreon account which i have online as well but please do just reach out and i would be happy to chat with you about that and finally i just want to add too if you're at all interested in having me cover a specific topic going forward something that you just really find interesting or a group that you want to know more about, let me know that. I would be happy to learn more about what my listeners are interested in and we can kind of focus and maybe I'll add those topics to my list. Uh, and in fact, I believe next week's episode is going to be one that was requested a while back. And so I will be doing that um, next week. And I also have a few more interesting and exciting things to, that I'll be announcing in the next couple of weeks as well. Uh, So, please continue to listen. And until next week, uh, this is Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kenney, and I am out in three, two, one.